Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing our responsibility to steward God's gifts to us. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us up in prayer? Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful day here in Austin, as well as this group. We'd come together to worship you and also to just give you thanks and learn. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide our discussions today. I ask that you speak through me, speak through others who speak up. None of us want to mislead anyone. We're here to learn, but more importantly, we're here to apply what we learn. So we ask the Holy Spirit to use whatever it is that we do learn today in studying your word to continue to change us and help us be the light to everyone around us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Luke 19. And remember, we're on the final journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. That's where we are in the storyline here. So I'll begin in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, and Jesus entered and was passing through Jericho. So now Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's about five miles from the Jordan River. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. Remember that the Jews cannot stand the tax collectors. They feel that they've robbed them. That's one strike against them. They're also aligned with Rome. You remember the way tax collection worked? These people would actually go and buy an area from Rome or be aligned with Rome, and they were required to collect all the taxes, but they could also collect anything else they wanted, and that's how they got rich. And they only had to give to Rome the required tax that Rome required, but anything else they collected, they could keep. And so that's how they got rich. I had to say that sounds like a politician. Uh, very uh, much so. Yes, and it's interesting that they're also referred to as publicans, which kind of sounds like a politician. It wasn't a sin to be a tax collector. In fact, John the Baptist told repenting tax collectors to collect no more than was due, no more than what was ordered by Rome. You can look at that in Luke 3, verses 12 through 13. Jesus also told us to pay our taxes in Luke 20, which we'll get to eventually, Luke 20, verse 25. Jesus paid taxes himself. We saw that when we were in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. The problem was, though, that most of the tax collectors, they got rich, as I said, because they collected more than what was due to Rome, and they kept the extra. And this person, Zacchaeus, that we're reading about, we see he's chief tax gatherer. So he was in charge of the other tax collectors in that region. So there's no doubt, since it says he was rich, that's probably how he got rich. But they, tax gatherers, were outcast people. They were considered unclean. The Jews didn't even want them coming to the temple or to the synagogues. They were outcast people. Okay, so we've set up who this Zacchaeus is. And remember, last week, I told you I was going to mention this. Jesus actually told a parable about a tax gatherer, and he may have even had Zacchaeus in mind in that parable. You can go back and listen to that recording if you weren't here. We discussed that a little bit. Okay, so let's continue on. Verse 3, and Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, 
And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus. For Jesus was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So here's Jesus mentioning Zacchaeus by name, saying, look, you got to hurry and come down because I need to stay at your house. There's no record in Scripture of Jesus having met Zacchaeus before this. It looks like it's probably a predetermined, probably before the foundations of the world, that Jesus would come and save him. This is one of the most clear examples of Jesus seeking a specific person, finding him in a crowd in order to locate him and calling him by name and then pursuing him for his salvation. Let's watch what happens. Jesus calls out to him, and then in verse 6, And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. These are all the people that are gathered around there. They all start grumbling, and they say, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So the Jews would never stay overnight with such an unclean sinner. They were too righteous to do that. In fact, to them, that would be like sharing in that man's sin. Remember, they view themselves as righteous, so they would never hang out and spend the night with such a sinner as a tax collector. And so they begin to grumble. They say he's gone to be the guest of the man who is a sinner. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So here we see Zacchaeus acknowledging Jesus as Lord. He calls him Lord. And Zacchaeus is acknowledging his own sin. He acknowledges and states his intent to make restitution in keeping with the maximum that was required in the Old Testament. You can look at Exodus 22, verses 1 through 14, as well as Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, that talks about this restitution. So Zacchaeus is telling Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm bad, I want to make restitution in accordance with the Old Testament. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. So Zacchaeus is a Jew, but Jesus is making it clear he's not saved because he has Abraham's blood. And if you want more verses on that, you can look at Romans 2, verses 28 through 29, and Galatians 3 verses 6 through 9, as well as verse 29. And look what Jesus says in verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. They're all looking for a king to come overthrow Rome. Jesus is saying he did not come to overthrow Rome. He didn't come to bring social reform. He came to save sinners. And in his second coming, he's going to bring the kingdom. But he came to save the lost and the people who are headed for eternal separation from God. That's why he came. But the Jews, they still are clinging to their hope for this conquering king, someone to come and overthrow Rome and bring the kingdom in right then. And so Jesus is now going to tell a parable to explain that there's actually going to be two comings. It's the parable of the ten minas, and the kingdom offer is actually going to be withdrawn. It's going to be postponed. The Davidic kingdom that is promised is going to be postponed because the Jews are going to reject him. 
Let's look at the parable and then I'll come back and I'll explain a little bit of it as we go and then I'll come back and give you a little bit more at the end. So verse 11, and while they were listening to these things, and these things are where Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. They're hearing that, but they're not understanding. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So they're thinking that the kingdom is going to begin as soon as Jesus gets to Jerusalem. That's what they're thinking. But what we're going to see, we know the story, the Jews are going to end up rejecting him since he'll be arrested and he didn't overthrow Rome. We see that in John 1 verse 11. And Jesus right now is telling them this parable because he wanted to help them see that there would be a delay before he returned and established the kingdom that they were really looking for. Let's look at this parable of the ten minutes. And Jesus said, therefore, a certain nobleman, so a king, a nobleman, went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, Jesus is actually telling this parable, but this is actually Jesus. Jesus went to a distant country. He came to earth. He came to us, okay? He came to us, and he came to the Jews to offer a kingdom for himself and then return back to sit at the right hand of the Father. By the way, we know that Christ will be crucified, die, buried, and then resurrected and ascend up to the right hand of the Father. That's described in Acts 2, verses 33 and 36. And you can also look at Mark 13, verses 33 through 37. But there's going to be a delay. His first coming is, as he stated in verse 10, to seek and save that which is lost, to pay the debt for our sins, but there's going to be a second coming. There's going to be a delay before the kingdom is established and before he returns. You can look also, we'll get there in Luke 21, when we get to chapter 21, verses 25 to 36, as well as in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Those tell us that there'll be a first and second coming of Jesus. In Mark 13, verses 33 through 37, also describes this delay and that there would be a return. And so he's giving this parable, this king, this nobleman, goes to a distant country to receive the kingdom for himself and then return. And while he was there, he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas. Okay, so a mina is equal to about three months wages. So he gives them 10 minas and he says to them, do business with this until I come back. These 10 slaves, they basically represent all of us as servants of Jesus, okay? And he gives each of them 10 minutes, and he instructs them to do something, do something profitable with what they've been entrusted. What they do with it would then show how much they love their master and how committed they are to him, and that he will then reward them when he returns. So he says, go and do business, go invest, do something profitable with this. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him. You see that? And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's exactly what the Jews are saying. They're going to reject Jesus. And there's many today that reject Jesus. They don't want Jesus as their king. They don't want Jesus to reign. They don't want to place Jesus as Lord of their life or as their savior. And by the way, Jesus telling this parable about the rejection of the king, 
I'll give you a little history here. This would actually really resonate with this crowd because many of these people were citizens of Herod Archelaus from that territory. And the people had opposed his reign as well and actually had gone and persuaded Caesar Augustus to only give him half of his father's kingdom and not give him the title of king. He was actually called an ethnarch rather than king. So even this parable that Jesus is saying, it would resonate with them because they actually saw that happen with the king in their area. But Jesus is actually referring to himself here. The citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Verse 15, and it came about that when he returned, so when the king returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. So when Jesus returns, he's going to ask each of us, what did we do with the opportunities that have been given to us? And that's what this king is doing in this parable. And by the way, the king does return. So even Jesus's foes, they're not going to be able to keep him from returning and judging everyone. Verse 16, the first appeared saying, Master, your minna has made 10 minas more. It also says after receiving the kingdom. Mm -hmm. That is exactly right. Uh, which I think is important in that context of uh, sort of the, the second coming. On this, Larry, yeah. I, what I feel is like this is Jesus, at, when he dies, he goes to heaven to receive his kingdom. He is the king of heaven, obviously king of heaven and earth, but he's receiving. And so he's going to come back whenever he returns. I think that's what we're all saying here. Just want to clarify yes. that. Yes. Okay. It came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdoms, as Chris is mentioning, when he ascended to heaven, he ordered that the slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. What did they do with the opportunities that they had been given? And they first appeared saying, Master, your minna has made ten minas more. And the king said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. So this first person, this first slave, he's not boasting. He's actually giving credit to the master. The master gave him something to do with these 10 minutes, and he was very productive in what he did. And so you can see he received a great reward. Now he's going to be a steward over 10 cities, not just 10 minutes. And so this shows that we'll be given further responsibility in the kingdom and in eternity based on what we do and how we steward the opportunities that Jesus has given to us. We're actually will be reigning with Christ in the kingdom. I'll just flip over and show you where another verse that I get that from. It's in 2 Timothy 2.12. It says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So we will reign with Jesus in the kingdom. Believers, this is believers. We will reign with him and we will have responsibilities in the kingdom and into eternity based on how we steward the opportunities and the blessings that Jesus gives to us as believers. And by the way, our reward, we may think heaven is all about we're going to get there and it's just going to be just rest. We're just going to sit around and do nothing. That probably get boring for eternity. No, it's clear that every one of us is going to have something to do when we get to heaven. We're going to have responsibilities. We're going to reign with him. We're not God, but we're going to reign with him into the millennial kingdom and then further into eternity. 
So let's see what happens with the second one. And the second one came saying, your minna, master, has made five minas. So not everyone is given the same opportunities. This is still a faithful steward of what he was given. So what happens to him in verse 19? And so the king said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. So he was given a great reward, not just more minas. And the rewards that we receive, they're going to vary depending on what we do with the opportunities God has given to us. It isn't based on how we do compared to everyone else. Okay, so don't look at somebody, you know, you can look at like a Billy Graham and say, oh, my gosh, look how many people he brought to faith. He's going to be up there and he probably will. But that was the opportunity that God gave him. Okay, it may be that God gave him even more like he didn't do even what he should have been doing. I'm not judging at all. I'm just using him as an example. Don't compare yourselves to Chris, the pastor. Don't compare yourselves to anyone else. It's what are you doing with the opportunities and the blessings that God has given you? How are you stewarding those in your own life? How are you making an impact for the kingdom with what God has given you? That's what will be held to account for. Okay, so let's see where I left off. Verse 20, and another, here comes the third. Another came saying, Master, Behold your minna, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. That was a common practice back then. Of course, it was unsafe. It's unproductive. It shows this guy was lazy. He was really indifferent. He had no desire to try to please his master to do anything with the opportunity that had been given to him. And watch, he not only was lazy about it, he now tries to shift the blame over to the master, over to the king, saying he didn't do anything wrong in his own eyes. So he's really just like the Jews who are self-righteous. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They think they got it all made. They kind of got their own way to get there. They're going to get there their own way. They've got the blood of Abraham and very legalistic. They're going to do all this stuff, and they think that gives them their righteousness. So look what this guy says in verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. And you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So here this guy, he's actually accusing his master of being a thief and violating laws. There's no love or respect for his master. Actually, it appears he hates him. And he did nothing of eternal value with his life. And this is typical of people who kind of live with a very legalistic religion rather than relying on God's grace. They really believe that God is a tyrant and just making us do a whole bunch of stuff and obey and jump through all these religious practices and rituals and all this just for God's own pleasure, just to kind of make us do that. And they actually don't think that God is going to give them what they really deserve. And of course, we know as Christians, we know what we deserve. We know that we're sinners, and we know that we can't get right with God on our own, and we actually deserve death. We deserve eternal separation. It's only by grace that we are saved. And so let's see how Jesus reacts to this guy. Verse 22, this master says to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. So he's unproductive. And what he's saying is Jesus isn't agreeing with his description of him, but he's saying since that was really what you chose to believe and that is the system that you kind of believe in in terms of your righteousness 
then I'll just judge you on your system. Okay, and so that's what you believe. That's what you believed how I was. And so I'll judge you on that basis. And he's calling him a worthless slave. He's obviously not a believer. He had no respect for the master. He was more interested in his own self-interest. And he had no personal relationship with the master. He didn't care about the master's interest. He didn't care that the master had entrusted him with these menace to do something with. So verse 23, the master says, Then why did you not put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. So at least do something. Couldn't you have done something rather than just putting it in a handkerchief and ignoring it? He could have done something. Verse 24, And he said to the bystanders, The bystanders in this story, it could be angels, it could be the human servants of God that are there with Jesus at the time when this is going to take place. He says, take the minute away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minutes. This is really going to blow the bystanders away. Look what they say. Wait a minute, they said to him. Master, that guy, he already has ten minutes. Why do we give him ten more? They're thinking very legalistically. Why don't we give the extra to the guy who only had five, and then everybody will be the same, you see? They wanted to treat everyone the same, give it to the one who had five. But Jesus gives the most to the one who had glorified him the most, the one who had the ten minutes. So we either use the gifts that we're given and make progress and use it in a way to glorify God and help build the kingdom, or we're going to suffer loss. And if we don't do anything with it, we'll lose even what we have. From a salvation standpoint, this is not salvation. This is rewards. But if we never even placed our faith in Jesus Christ and we have a different concept of God rather than grace, then we'll be judged on that basis and we'll be separated from God forever. So this teaches also that Christ, who has the right to rule, he entrusts us with stewardship. And we'll be held accountable for what we do with the stewardship that Jesus has given us. And those who do well with what has been entrusted to us, then we'll have varying degrees of authority in the kingdom when Christ returns. Verse 26, Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. So the third was stripped of everything. And it represents those who claim to have a relationship with Christ, maybe even go to church, but they don't have any personal relationship with the Lord and they don't understand grace. They may be trying to earn their own way and that isn't going to get you there. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, get you your salvation. And then what you do with the opportunities that Jesus has given us that gets you your rewards and what authority that you will have in the kingdom. Larry, do you think that that's a helpful clarification to the faith without works is death? If you actually have faith, the works should become apparent in you from the Holy Spirit working in you. And in this case, you have a slave, someone who in the parable would profess faith, but clearly the Holy Spirit's not doing anything to make this guy actually demonstrate that faith. Is that what uh, you think of? appropriate interpretation of this? I think that's one way to look at it, although I think he's really, let me read verse 27, and I think that's who you're talking about now in verse 27. It says, but these enemies of mine, so it wasn't the slave, it was the enemies he's talking about, or the people who said they didn't want 
it's over in verse 14. They didn't want him to reign over us. So those are the people, those are the unbelievers. They just straight rejected. So they've rejected. If you look at this, there's really only two groups, but in the second group, there's kind of two subgroups, okay? So the first group is believers, okay? And so if you're a believer, you're right. There should be evidence of that in the good works that you do, the Holy Spirit working in and through you. It's not you. It's you allowing the Holy Spirit to do that. That comes from James. The second group are unbelievers, okay? The first group, remember, you're promised eternal life, but then you're going to go through the judgment that's at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's where our rewards are given to us and our responsibilities. We aren't judged by our sin. We've talked about this before. Our sin has been forgotten as far as east as from west, but we'll be judged on what we did with the opportunities and blessings and things that God gave us to steward. What did we do with our life to build the kingdom? So that's our judgment as believers. Unbelievers go through the great white throne judgment. That's a judgment where they will be judged on the basis just how they wanted. They didn't want the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They wanted to earn their way. They wanted to do it their way. And so God's going to judge them based on their life. The books will be opened. There will be a review of their life. They will be judged for their sin. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity, eternally separated from God. And that's what this verse 27 is talking about. So the third guy actually is saved, but in heaven is probably stripped of any responsibility. That's how I see that. Yes, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. He acknowledges the king. So he's not saying you're not king. He just has a wrong view of him and he doesn't engage. He doesn't see him as a father. He sees him as a tyrant. And we can say there's lots of people who view God like that. And so therefore he is losing the relationship aspect. So there's not a trust in him that he doesn't take any risk. So the the risk factor. So just think about, I don't want to share my faith with somebody because I don't trust God that he'll provide for me. If even if I lose my job, because I share my faith, I don't trust God that I'm going to give to the capital campaign, tithe, whatever the thing is. Because I don't trust God because he's a tyrant. He's not going to be a good father. I don't trust God in my marriage, so i got to go find somebody else who will love me because I don't trust... You see how that works? I don't trust God loves me enough to provide all those different aspects of my life, so I'm not going to steward them in the way that he would want me to and take risk for him. I'm risk-averse when it comes to my faith, and I've just got to lock, hold it down and get the best I can out of this life. Well, this... this uh... I mean, this just, is, to me, just rings my bell so loud. Don't just stand there, do something. Right? I mean, how many parents have said that to some youth? Don't just stand there, do something. You know? How many times in the last 24 hours? Right, right. But the core, and I just, I happen to underline, is just stewardship. We have a responsibility, and I think it does tie to our responsibility to works. You know, this is our driver. Don't just stand there, you know, do something, and it may be wrong, and you'll learn from that, and that'll be a lesson. Your action should be reflective of faith, because he does do something. He takes the money, he puts it in a handkerchief, and just terrified. So he does something, however, what he does is not out of faith, it's out of fear. Yes. And and I think that, because, you know, doing something is going to be... You know, sitting there is doing something. Yeah. And so I feel like what his response is, fear of the king, not love for the king. And what Jesus is really wanting to emphasize is he is the ultimate expression of love, and you can trust him 
Because if he would have said, I went and I tried to invest all your money and I lost it all, Jesus would have been like, I got you, man. Like, that's the difference. He goes and he just is terrified yeah. of what's going to happen if he fails because he doesn't understand the heart of the well, king. Fear is a tool that's of the Absolutely. Enemy. Fear. Yeah. Another thing, the third person, I agree with what Chris is saying about the third person. However, I think it is instructive to also think of people who are really false followers. And I'm not sure that that's the case of this person, because the way the verses read, his is just taken away. And then verse 27, but these enemies of mine, which I think is referring to everyone else, are slaughtered. They're judged and eternally separated from God. But I think it is instructive also that false followers, there are a lot of people who even show up in all of our churches who are just there, but they never really have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're going to be exposed in the judgment. So there's kind of two groups. Like I say, you're either a believer or you're not a believer. And then the non-believers, there's some people that may appear to be believers to us, but, you know, I don't know who's saved. I don't know. That's not for me to do. God knows everyone's heart. God knows each of our hearts. Have we truly placed our faith in Jesus Christ? And some of that group, too, could be seekers. They're there to learn. To me, it seems like it's not just two choices. It's believer and non-believer, but these seekers are reaching for something. Well, they can seek all they want, but yeah. until they're okay. a believer, so, yeah. they're, they're, there's only two groups. Okay. Our culture celebrates the seeker. Like, okay. As long as you're searching for God, you're okay. As long as you say you found him, now you've made an absolute statement. Okay. And so now you are like the enemy. I mean, okay. we were all seekers at one point. That's true. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with seeking except that's not good enough. <laughs> okay. Okay, but you got to take the step First, and that's okay. usually given to you by the Holy Spirit. But you're going the right direction. That is given to you. But that doesn't get you there. Right. Okay. So true seekers. I think that's worth If you're a seeker, you're actually going to find him. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the difference. So if you are truly seeking God, you're going to find him. He doesn't make himself hidden from you, right? Okay. And I think that's what's hard, I think. And some people hide behind that seeking. Seeking. Uh, and we have yeah. such sweet hearts for them because you're like, oh, you're seeking. That's great. And so does the rest of the world because everyone's like, oh, that one's on the table, right? So everyone wants to be kind okay. to that person. But once you kind of get into a camp, because if you're just a, an independent person, who does everybody court? Independence. They don't talk to Democrats or they don't talk to Republicans, right? That's just nonsense. Why waste your time? So I think that becomes like, as soon as you say you found something, you're going to be extremely accepted by one group and extremely polarizingly not by another. Okay. That's, that's a fair assessment. I think because we're kind of stuck on number three, looking at person one and two is a great example of getting number three over the ledge to actually start doing works and not just store away his mina, right? That's where we talk about discipleship. It's our job to get people from the lower room to the upper room. And that's exactly what those first guys are doing. They're trying to maybe get number three, like like Joel or Chris or Justin, they've encouraged, everyone has encouraged us to go out and do with what we've been given. And I think it's just a great call to discipleship. Yeah. Help encourage your brother go out and do. That's nice. So, oh. Have you done a side-by-side? This is so close to the parable of talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me talk about that. Over in Matthew, it is not the same. Not the same. I'm, I'm curious what, what your reflections are. Yeah, I'll tell you some of the key differences. And what he's referring to is the parable in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. First of all, the parable in Matthew, that location is in Jerusalem, and this location is in Jericho. So that's one key that we know it's a different occasion. 
in Matthew's parable, the audience is only the disciples. And here the audience is much broader than that. So that's another difference. In Matthew, it's not a king, it's a businessman. And here in Luke, it's a king or a nobleman. In Matthew, there's three slaves. And in Luke, there's ten slaves. In Matthew, they're each given different amounts. And in Luke, they're all given the same amount to go and invest, which is actually representing that we all have one life that we're given to represent Jesus and represent him. And so what are we doing with that one life as opposed to the many gifts and blessings and stewardship opportunities we're given? And then in Matthew, all the rewards are the same. And in Luke, the rewards are different. So while they sound the same at a very high level, they're actually two different parables. It's been a while since I read Parable of Talents, but this concept of the delay, basically the judgment, I'm not sure it was as explicitly communicated in Matthew, but I might be misremembering. Yeah, so take the talent from him, the guy that hid it, give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he who has not, even when he has, will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So... In this case, the servant that was scared essentially goes to hell. And this guy, in this one, is where I think he's a believer who's stripped away of all rewards. Right. Because <laughs> I think that guy would be the false. The false. Because the, the reason why it's important is the accepting of Jesus as king is a big deal in all the Gospels. Because that's Jesus comes as the coming king. Remember, which is why Herod wanted to kill him. And so when those people accept him as the king, the king of Israel, that's what all the messianic prophecies were about, was about the coming king. They couldn't fully wrap their head around, you know, he was God-man, he was a God-man. But you have that, and this one really presents him. Here's the coming king, not a businessman to your point, and are you going to accept him or reject him? Seven reject, three accept, and one of those guys that accepts, accepts in a way that's like, okay, I'm just afraid, don't, and he doesn't have faith in him. He has fear of him. Hopefully that's helpful. And so what this brings to my mind also is I look forward to the day of getting to heaven. I mean, it's not like I want to die tomorrow or anything (laughs) like that, but it's like I can't wait to be there, all right? But one thing that sort of gives me a little trepidation is standing in front of Jesus and having this review of like, here was this opportunity. What were you thinking? What were you thinking here, you know? It isn't going to be about my sin. It's going to be about all the things, the places he put me. It's like, I mean, I put you right. I had it all set up. All you had to do was just say something, you know? And it was like, yeah, but God, I was late. and had a full list of things to do. I am not looking forward to that part of it. And we're all going to have to go through that. And I think that may be a reason. I'm not clear about this. But where it talks about when you get to heaven and he wipes the tears from our eyes, you know, there'll be no tears in heaven. It might have something to do with when you finish that review, you're not going to be feeling too good about it. I just hope he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I hope. But I know, just reflect on your life. How many times you know for sure that Jesus wants you to do something and it wasn't on your plan. You were working your plan that day. Barry, I think that's so good that you say that. And you've said that kind of before. Yes. Um, I think about it a lot. It, I do too. And it, you've said it. And I will so often just be amongst people. And 
I'm like, I just, all of a sudden I feel this desire to share. Joel calls it the I can't help it. I got the I can't help it. I have to share the gospel with people. And it's intimidating. Like yesterday, at a, I was at a Mediterranean place kind of sharing the gospel with this girl. And her brother, it seemed like an overseer, came over and just shut me down. Wanted no part of me sharing the gospel. But it's you illustrating that we're going to have to give an account, or I guess the Bible, illustrating that we're going to have to give a God an account for what we have done on this earth right. that gives me the courage to go forward and actually share the gospel instead of being like, you know what? It's a little uncomfortable to do this. I think I'll just carry on. Yeah. Like It's a great illustration to think of to give us courage here on this earth. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. I've had people sometimes say to me afterwards, you know, like, golly, you kind of made them feel uncomfortable. And it's like, how uncomfortable are they going to feel going back to my nightmare when they're standing in the wrong line? That's going to be some real uncomfort. I just feel like I don't want anybody to be standing in the wrong line because I failed to open my mouth. You know, that really weighs on me. Larry, I'm grateful for you as well for reminding us of this over and over. Every time I read, is it Peter who rejects three times? The response is the same every single time I think about that. So like, can't believe what Peter did. And then like within three to five seconds, I'm like, yeah, I did it at least three times. And so thank you for helping uh, keep it top of mind. That's good. Well, my current favorite thing to do is talk about this Bible study to people. <laughs> it's so easy to talk about it. And then people, I get curious. And they, I think some people think we're in here kind of, you know, thumping the Bible. And I go, no, we had fun. This is a journey, and we're all on it together, and it energizes me. It also is an accountability for me that I need, I want, because yeah. I need it. <laughs> well, Eric, one of the things that just really stands out is that the first two guys have a love for the king, and this third guy does not, because love causes us to live a life of faith and they go and they do something with the minutes that they have been given and the third guy he does not because he basically accuses the king of being a severe a hard man that you reap where you don't sow and that you all these things so he is blaming him for his own shortcomings and in doing that he tells him I hate you is basically what he is telling him. I don't trust you, and I don't believe the things that you've shared that you wanted us to do. And so with that, I did what I believe to be the right thing, and I folded up for what the culture of that day, because I think you said that, that in the culture of that day that they used a napkin or a handkerchief and they put it in there. And we cannot do what culture allows us to do, but we must do that which God is calling us to do and that is to share it. That's so good, and I love the part that you said that the third person here in the parable didn't trust God. And just by us continuing to work our own plan, you know, whatever we think that we're supposed to be doing, which is pursuing our career, pursuing all the material things that we want, doing all the things that are part of our plan, shows that we don't trust God and His plan because we want to take care of ourselves rather than knowing God's going to take care of us. Go work his plan. What does he want us to be doing? Are we trusting God to take care of us while we do his work? 
are we doing our work to try to elevate ourselves, to progress, to be somebody? We're wanting to be somebody. This was my problem. I wanted to be somebody rather than to be a servant of the Most High God. We begin trusting in ourselves for achievement rather than just work God's plan and he'll take care of everything else. Because everything we have, he gave us. Our job, our family, our relationships with other people. Think of this. The people that you know who are friends that are maybe not believers, why do you think God gave you that relationship? Query that. He might have a job for you to do. Me too. I'm not preaching here. I'm talking to myself out loud. Got a lot to think about. The one thing that I couldn't help but think about when you were talking about all that, I know that we were talking about like when you're in heaven, give an account for what you're doing. But I don't think, and we've, we've touched on it a lot, that we can overlook the fact that we are going to have to suffer on this earth, right? Like Roman 8 says, provided that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. I guess I wanted to contrast that with we do have a heavenly reward, but we are going to have to suffer on this earth to get that heavenly reward. So I, I don't want to just look at the roses. I also want to look. I want to, I want to be in the uh, trenches as well and think about that because it's hard. Trenches. Well, it helps you get through the trials and tribulations knowing that this is fleeting. I mean, you know, we're going to be in heaven and we're going to stand before Jesus and hopefully hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And then we're going to be given an eternal job to do based on how we did here. And that helps you get through the trials. And actually, when you realize, and Paul talked about this all the time, the trials we go through, it's not God just yanking our chain. He's trying to teach us something. He's trying to draw us closer. And if we could be more like Paul to say, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't necessarily like what you're doing here, but I know you're trying to teach me something. So let's go. I know I'm going to come out on the other side of this closer to you a better understanding of you, you know, whatever it is you're trying to teach me. You're knocking off my rough edges, making me more Christ-like. That's what our trials and tribulations are for. Look, I'm not good at this, but the Bible tells us to celebrate them. And that's why we should celebrate them. Just like Daniel's friends, when they were about to be thrown in the fire for not worshiping the golden idol, they didn't ask to not be put in the fire. They weren't praying to God, keep us out of the fire. They never prayed that. And that's what we all pray. Keep me out of this trial. I see it coming. Or I'm in the middle. Get me out of the trial. They didn't pray that at all. They never prayed that. They said, you know what? We trust God. And he's going to take care of us. And if it means we're going in that fire, he's going to be with us. Show me the furnace. Let's go. So our prayers are all messed up. We constantly pray to not go into the trial. And what we're praying by that prayer, this is how messed up it is. We're saying, God, I don't want you to teach me anything. You know, keep me out of this trial because I'm good. I'm good where I am. I don't want to go through suffering because I'm good right where I am. Instead of, I can't do this either. You know, here's a trial. I don't know what you're teaching me. I know I'll see it eventually. Let's go. What are you trying to teach me? Make me into the person you want me to be. And the only way that happens is you got to go through the trials. Good discussion today. Really good. Let me just kind of summarize what we've said our salvation comes to us by our faith, but our rewards are based on our works. Our salvation comes to us not because of anything we did, it's because of what Jesus did for us. So don't get those two things confused. There's nothing we can do that contributes to our salvation. Nothing. We have nothing to contribute other than our need for a Savior. At the same time, 
we're left here for a reason. You know, we're not zapped to heaven as soon as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So what are we doing with the opportunities that Jesus has given to us? We're left here. That's his plan. I know it's a crazy plan. It is a crazy plan. You know, he came, lived for 30 years, a perfect life, poured his life into 12 guys for three years. So that's the model. Who are we pouring our lives into? That's the model. And then he left and said, I'm leaving it with you. Build the kingdom and I'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you. And so how are we utilizing that power that God's given us? What are we doing with our life here to build the kingdom? What are we doing and who are we pouring our lives into to help build the kingdom? How are we doing? How are we helping others find eternal life with God? Because just look around. There are so many lost people everywhere, everywhere. And so what are we doing and how are we doing? If we were to have a review today, you know, kind of consider it, those of you in business, you're used to kind of like a mid-year review. Well, take this as your mid-year review. And it's not too late. Okay? The year isn't over yet. So now, what can you do? And what are you going to do? You now know where you are. It's never too late. Here's the beauty of it. I love this. When we woke up this morning, we hadn't even sinned yet. Every day is a new day. Okay, and I'm not saying you're not going to sin, but what I'm saying is forget about what you haven't done in the past. Okay, that's past. You can't fix it. What are you going to do when we walk out of that door today? How are you going to be different than you were yesterday? How are you going to make a little progress towards that review that we're all going to have to get that well done, good and faithful servant? That's what we're working towards, not our salvation but to be thankful for what Jesus has done for us. And now we got a job to do. Let's go do it. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.